the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Dave King is engineering today's program. James Blind is vacationing. Today on the program, we'll talk with Jonathan Butcher. He's a senior policy analyst at the Center for Education Policy at the Institute for Family, Community and Opportunity. We're going to talk about uh, schools starting again and what uh, kinds of policies will be in place that make it less likely that someone who decides they want to shoot up the school can succeed. We're also going to talk with Tracy Miles. Uh, she's with Pro, uh, Proverbs 31. Uh, she has written the book, Love Life Again, Finding Joy When Life is Hard. We'll talk with Steve Moore in the five o'clock hour. He's a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, making the case uh, that the United States is leading the world in uh, reducing carbon emissions without enacting extreme environmental policies. And we'll talk with Katie Yoder, associate uh, cultural editor and the Joe and Betty uh, Adderlink uh, fellow at the Media Research Center. We'll talk about a CBS Refinery 29 poll that reveals what young women women think about abortion, feminism, and the media. All of that coming up on today's program. Well, you know, when you start putting a show together, you have certain ideas of the course the program is going to take, but today has been uh, little more than a series of breaking news stories, the implications of which people are just now uh, starting to come to terms with. First, the federal jury in Virginia convicted former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort on eight counts related to bank and tax fraud, making him the first campaign associate of President Trump found guilty by a jury as part of the special counsel Robert Mueller's probe. Now, this um, these charges do not relate to his service to the president, but he did serve the president for a couple of months as a campaign manager, so it doesn't directly relate to the collusion investigation that Mueller was charged with. After four days of deliberations, the jury told Judge T.S. Ellis III on Tuesday afternoon that they uh, could not come to a decision on the 10 other counts. A mistrial was declared on those counts. The jury began deliberating last Tuesday after a three-week trial where prosecutors in Manafort hid income earned from political work overseas with the uh, from the IRS while fraudulently obtaining millions in bank loans. Manafort 69 has pled not guilty. Manafort was um, uh, stone-faced as the verdict was read. The government has until the 29th to decide whether they will move to retry the 10 counts deadlocked by the jury. Outside court, Manafort attorney Kevin Downing, he thanked the jury for their very long and hard-fought deliberation. Speaking of his client, Downing said he is um, evaluating all his options at this point, and there are some options. Well, before the jury was dismissed, the judge asked jurors if they wanted their names to remain confidential. All answered yes. The judge told them that they were allowed to speak to the press if they chose. In court, uh, the judge, known for his colorful comments and reprimands of attorneys throughout the trial, said he wanted to state publicly that the government and Mr. Manafort received effective and zealous representation. Earlier in the day, the 12-member jury signaled difficulty reaching consensus on at least one count. In a note passed to Ellis, the jury asked, if we cannot come to consensus on the single count, what does that mean for the trial verdict? Well, the judge responded that this would not be exceptional and said the jury could reach a partial verdict. 
The defense attorney, Kevin Downey, uh, asked the uh, the judge if he would tell the jury uh, that they have a third option of hung jury on each of these accounts. The prosecution objected to that plan and Ellis agreed. Well, the whirlwind trial is the first to result from Mueller's ongoing investigation into Russian election peddling rather meddling, although Manafort's prosecution does not uh, relate to any election interference, but it does put him in a position where perhaps the Mueller um, investigative team feels like they can squeeze him for information that would relate to their collusion uh, investigation. And then there's this, the uh, then-candidate Donald Trump with his personal attorney, Michael Cohen, and uh, in bygone era were very close. Cohen had said that he would uh, fall on the sword for the uh, civilian uh, Donald Trump at the time. Well, in announcing his guilty plea this afternoon, Michael uh, Cohen said that he violated campaign law in coordination with and at the direction of a candidate for federal office, presumably referring to his former employer, then candidate Donald Trump. Well, his attorney then later came out and said specifically, yes, I am referring to Donald Trump. Well, Cohen, who also pled guilty to tax and bank fraud charges, violated campaign finance law by providing a hush money payment to former porn star Stormy Daniels, who claims to have had an affair with uh, Donald Trump before he was president. The payment to Daniels intended to silence the woman totaled $130,000 is considered to be an in-kind contribution in excess of the maximum allowable amount. Cohen is not required to cooperate with investigators and any other federal probe as part of the agreement. Now, Cohen also admitted while announcing his plea that the payment to Daniels and another hush money payment to former Miss America contestant Karen McDougal uh, were made for the principal purpose of influencing the election. Well, uh, Donald Trump's uh, attorney, Rudy Giuliani, has previously conce- conceded rather that Trump reimbursed Cohen uh, for the payment to Daniels over a period of several months. Giuliani's statements contradicted those of White House officials who repeatedly insisted that the president was unaware of that particular uh, payment. Now, the question is, did um, Mr. Cohen directly implicate the president's campaign uh, by uh, admitting to violating campaign finance laws on behalf of the president? And the answer appears to be yes. The other question that remains is, can you indict a sitting president? Uh, president? Well, that may be a moot point at this uh, juncture, but it has been an ongoing question. Um, what we do know is that uh, a sitting president can be charged once he uh, leaves office after his term of, of service. So whether or not it goes to uh, to that point. Uh, as I mentioned, in cooperating uh, with investigators, Cohen did not make the kind of agreement that says, yes, I will spill it all, uh, although it seems that he may, in fact, be doing just that. So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. And finally, the breaking news story no one wanted to hear. A suspect in connection with Molly Tibbetts' murder is in custody and has been identified as a 24-year-old man in the United States illegally, according to investigators who announced uh, made that announcement rather earlier at a, um, a news conference. Uh, Christian Rivera was charged with first-degree murder in uh, Tibbetts' death. She was the Iowa a uh, college student who had had gone missing about a month ago. Officials confirmed this afternoon that she is dead and that they now have uh, the, a primary suspect. Authorities said that Rivera of the rural 
uh, county area where the body was found, about uh, 10 miles away from where she had been staying, is being held on a federal immigration detainer. He's believed to have been in the area for four to seven years. They do not know for certain. The body of Tibbetts, a 20-year-old University of Iowa student, was found uh, today. Her father and two sources confirmed she was last seen at about 7.30 p.m. on the 18th of July when she was running around a neighborhood in Brooklyn. Tibbetts' family pleaded for the safe return and had remained hopeful that she would be found alive. Uh, Her father was returning home to the San Francisco area after spending weeks looking for his daughter, uh, but uh, swiftly reversed course and returned to the scene of that crime. The bottom line is somebody knows something he had said previously, adding that Brooklyn is a small city and you can't do anything there without someone seeing it. Well, for the last month, investigators followed hundreds of leads, interviewing hundreds of uh, people, canvassing a nearby hog farm, cornfields and other uh, properties for traces of the college student. They did find her body in in a cornfield about 10 miles outside of the Brooklyn area. Investigators announced last week they were focusing the search on five locations. They've now narrowed it down to one. Um, And the perpetrator of this crime is now in custody. Finally, air quality in Portland ranks fourth worst among major cities worldwide today, according to Air Visual, a data visualization tool that tracks air quality. Of course, this isn't perpetual. It's because of the wildfires in our area. But Air Visual data showed Portland's air quality 159, keeping in mind that 160 is bad for everyone. Um, it was the worse than Lahore, Pakistan at 153 and Vancouver, British Columbia at 153 uh, as of this afternoon. As of that reading, the only major cities with worse air quality than Portland are Dubai, United Arab Emirates, Seattle and Hanoi, Vietnam. Well, Portland's air quality is slightly clearer, however, compared to some smaller towns in Oregon, primarily in the southern part of the state. Shady Cove, Klamath Falls, John Day, Burns and Medford are worse or had worse readings than Portland, according to Air Now, a government agency that measures air quality. Those two cities had air quality indexes ranging between AQI 168 and AQI 182. Well, wildfire smoke has blanketed the Portland metro area since Sunday after shifting winds uh, brought haze from fires in British Columbia. Air quality is expected to deteriorate further today before it starts to clear up tomorrow and Thursday. Thursday and belong, uh, beyond rather look much better. The smoke will be gone and temperatures uh, will top out in the 70s. I remember the 70s vaguely. The sky will remain partly sunny and we all have something to look forward to. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Jonathan Butcher, a senior policy analyst. We're going to talk about going back to school and what policies will prevail to try to prevent uh, violent actions on school grounds. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, after last year's terrible shooting in Parkland, Florida, many are pushing to have school discipline policies shifted back to local communities. Restorative justice practices that were outlined in an Obama-era letter instructed schools to sign memoranda of agreement with law enforcement to limit student interaction with police and told schools to use suspension and expulsion as a last resort. Well, that regulation not only didn't prevent the massacre at the Parkland, Florida High School in February, it may have actually contributed to it. Well, here to talk with us about that is Jonathan Butcher. He's a senior policy analyst at the Center for Education Policy Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. 
I can imagine parents all across the country are anxious about sending their kids back to school. And while uh, the kinds of violent episode that we saw in uh, Parkland, Florida is rare, um, it ha- the fact that it happens at all is concerning to parents. Let's talk about the Obama era um, letter that instructed schools to deal with uh, troubled students in a way that isn't particularly helpful. Well, sure. And those policies that you were talking about in Parkland, Florida, which is in Broward County, Broward County's ideas actually inspired what became a part of that federal letter that you were just talking about. So many of these ideas about restricting uh, uh, student suspension or expulsion, uh, many of them came out of what was already in place in Broward County. The significance, of course, is that once it becomes part of a federal letter, then it becomes something that districts all over the country are being held accountable to. And that is what has happened in the years since. Now, how common is it for the federal government to issue a directive that would have an impact on how all schools across the country uh, would deal with disciplinary problems within their local communities? Well, once is too many. It certainly is not within the realm of responsibility for the federal government. Uh, it is definitely beyond the scope of what Washington should be doing if they are trying to tell schools how to handle student behavior. Uh, there are federal laws dealing with um, you know, civil rights and making sure that students are treated fairly, certainly uh, not being disciplined exclusively because of the color of their skin. I mean, there, there are federal laws protecting that already for the U.S. Department of Education to go even beyond that, which is what they did with the letter, and actually give recommendations for how schools should develop codes of conduct is really beyond what Washington should be doing. Well, one of the the things that I I mentioned a moment ago, that this directive not only uh, didn't prevent the shooting in Parkland, Florida, but may have actually contributed to it. Let's talk about how the mechanics of how this was designed to work and how this undermined uh, and can undermine a school district's um, opportunity to identify troubled students and deal with them in a way that not only meets the needs of that individual, but protects fellow students. Sure. In the, in the case of the alleged shooter in Parkland, Florida, he had a very difficult life, and I, and I certainly don't want to undermine that. I mean, he definitely had some challenges in his background with his family and family breakdown, um, but the fact is, is that he was referred to the Promise Program, which is what Broward County's school discipline policy was called. And after the tragedy happened, uh, Robert Runcy, who's the superintendent there in Broward County, he said, no, this promise program has nothing to do with what happened uh, in Parkland. And he defended the program and, to my knowledge, still has up to this day. Now, he had the local officials had to admit eventually in May of this year that he, uh, the alleged shooter, was referred to the program, but they had no record of his attendance. And there was no record of any follow-up. No one knew what was done regarding this particular individual's situation. So you have a, a, a system here where all of the involved parties have promised each other, effectively, as you described that memo of understanding, that they would only use this exclusionary discipline as a last resort. And I think what it may have created are holes in what should have been a safety net to help students that needed this kind of intervention, and it didn't happen. 
I know that you are calling on Education Secretary Betsy DeVos to do away with these regulations in dealing with school discipline. But my understanding is she intends to uh, come up with a compromise that would still leave the federal government's hand in, but wouldn't necessarily resolve the, the issues that are of concern. So the Department of Education and a commission that is being led by the secretary are holding hearings around the country uh, looking at this issue of, of local school safety and what the federal government's role is. Uh, there has been a suggestion from uh, a Washington group that would remove one part of this Dear Colleague letter that we're talking about, but it would leave the rest of the letter including these provisions about how schools should, according to Washington, handle student discipline. That would be left in place. And that would be a big mistake. I mean, the issue here is that Washington cannot possibly know what the needs are of students in schools across the country, particularly when it comes to student behavior and dealing with these unique instances of uh, students that find themselves in trouble or get themselves in trouble. So unless the secretary really puts her mark, I think, on this issue by saying, hey, look, we're going to trust teachers and the other school personnel who are involved with this to make the decisions that they need to, and then trust parents if they feel like their child is not in a safe situation and give them the opportunity to choose a different school or a different learning experience, then that is the way that Washington can best, uh, I think, update what has been um, a pretty intrusive federal policy regarding uh, student behavior. How likely is it that Secretary DeVos would choose that option, uh, freeing school districts to make decisions in their uh, in their own best interests, in the interests of students and their families, uh, as opposed to this uh, uh, this watered down version of the Obama era regulation? Well, I hope that she does. Uh, she has certainly voiced her support for parental choice in education. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a good thing. Uh, I would say that a survey was released today, a nationally representative survey um, of, uh, of Americans, and it asked this question about uh, how family, how, when asked, how do they feel about um, limiting a school's ability to use suspension or expulsion? And 50% of respondents said that they did not approve, that they did not like that idea. So when asked about it, I think the public uh, at least in you know in the survey evidence that we have, I think the public realizes that uh, this takes something away from a local school's ability to do what is in the best interest of the kids that are in their charge. Uh, so I hope you know I hope that evidence like that uh, it can be used to uh, to help the secretary understand that this is about helping schools make the best decisions for the children that they are responsible for during the school day. Is there a way for moms and dads listening whose sons and daughters will, if they haven't already, will start school again uh, here in the next few weeks to influence that decision-making process? Well, certainly communicating uh, to the extent that individual voters can with the Department of Education. Uh, I think that's kind of always a roundabout way of, of talking to, uh, to federal officials. I think the most important thing they can do right now is as their children go back to school, be very clear with the teacher, with uh, the principal, with the school personnel that they come in contact with, uh, that they expect that uh, these school leaders will, um, will understand that students need to be held accountable for their actions. And when they do something that is uh, warranting um, 
discipline, whether it be suspension or expulsion, that they will do so, especially if it means that the children, the rest of the kids in the class, will be better protected in that case. Tell them. Tell your teacher. Tell the principal. And uh, remember, these are your children that, uh, and, and their safety that we're talking about. Be clear with them. Well, thank you so much for uh, for talking with us about it, and we'll certainly follow uh, closely what the Education Secretary ultimately decides to do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Again, uh, Jonathan Butcher is a Senior Policy Analyst at the C- Center for Education Policy Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity. Up next, we're going to talk with Tracy Miles. She's the author of Love Life Again, Finding Joy When Life is Hard. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. So far, we haven't been able to reach our guest, Tracy Miles. We'll hope to do that and we'll break in as soon as she is available, should that happen. Some of the developing news stories today, President Trump suggests that he could take over special counsel Robert Mueller's Russian investigation as his attorney, Rudy Giuliani, defended his uh, recent Truth Isn't Truth comments in an exclusive interview on Fox News. And President Trump suggested in a tweet that he may consider pulling former FBI official Phil Mudd's security clearance after Mudd's uh, Mudd's heated comments about the Trump-John Brennan feud. And voters in Alaska went to the polls today to select candidates for governor and the U.S. House in primary elections on Tuesday. Well, as I mentioned, President Trump asserted on Monday that he would be totally allowed to take over special counsel Robert Mueller's probe if he wanted to in another thinly veiled broadside against an investigation he has repeatedly derided as a partisan witch hunt. I can go in. I could do whatever. I could uh, run it if I I wanted, Trump told Reuters, but I decided to stay out. I'm totally allowed to be involved if I want to be. So far, I haven't chosen to be involved. I'll stay out. The comment apparently is a reference to the president's executive authority to order Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein at the Justice Department to fire or replace Mueller. Um, it came as jurors continued to deliberate in the first trial bought, uh, brought rather as a result of Mueller's probe. Uh, we will revisit that um, outcome in just a few moments. Meanwhile, speaking exclusively at One Network, the story of uh, Martha McCallan on Monday night, Trump's attorney Rudy Giuliani defended his comment Sunday that truth isn't truth, which drew a firestorm of criticism on social media. Prosecutors can bring perjury charges against an honest witness, Giuliani said, as long as they can find others to present an alternative version of events. So what he was apparently saying was that you may present a true account of events, but it's not considered true um, if there are others who are willing to offer an alternative, whether or not it's truthful. Okay, it was kind of a roundabout way of saying what is, is. Well, President Trump suggested in a tweet that he's considered uh, considering rather pulling the security clearance of a former FBI official over his heated comments on the revocation of former CIA director John Brennan's clearance during a TV appearance over the weekend. The president said former FBI official Phil Mudd became totally unplugged and weird. That's a quote during a debate with CNN analyst Paris Denard on the president's decision to revoke Brennan's clearance. Just watch former intelligence official Philip Mudd become totally unglued and weird while debating wonderful. Um, the other person's name over Brennan's security clearance, he tweeted, Denard destroyed him, but Mudd is in no mental condition to have such a clearance, should be revoked, question mark. Well, Denard said Trump was right to revoke Brennan's security clearance in that broadcast and argued former Intel officials keep their clearances because it's profitable for them after they leave government, prompting an eruption from Mudd, who once worked under then-FBI Director Robert Mueller. Mudd insisted he does not use his clearance for profit in the private sector, although most do. 
And Alaskans are set to uh, see a three-way race for governor in November. But first, Republicans will have to decide on their candidate in the August 21st primary. Incumbent Governor Bill Walker, an independent, is running for re-election. And Democrat um, Mark Begich is uh, unopposed (coughs) in his primary. Uh, he has ranked, uh, they've ranked the general gubernatorial election as a toss-up at this point. Former State Senator Mike Dunleavy and former Alaska Lieutenant Governor Meade Treadwell will emerge as the leading Republican candidates for governor. Also running are Darren Colbury, Thomas Gordon, Gerald Hikes, Marika something, and Michael Sheldon. Sorry, Marika, can't pronounce the name. In Alaska's other three big races, or other big race, rather, independent Elise Galvin and Democrat Dimitri Shine are among the candidates vying for a shot to take on Republican U.S. Representative Don Young, who is expected to win his primary. The 85-year-old Young has served in the House since 1973. The closest anyone has come to upsetting Young in recent years was 2008, when he eked out a 304 win uh, over... Um, uh, then Lieutenant Governor Sean Parnell in the GOP primary. And on this day in 1959, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed an executive order making Hawaii the 50th state. On this day in 1912, the Boy Scouts of America names its first Eagle Scout Arthur Rose Eldred of uh, Troop 1 in Rockville Center, New York. And in 1831, on this day, Nate Turner Nat Turner, uh, launched a, a, a violent slave rebellion in Virginia, resulting in the deaths of at least 55 of his opponents. Turner was later executed, but he made his point. Well, the top, top stories for the day, of course, were Paul Manafort convicted by jury on bank and tax fraud charges. A mistrial was uh, declared on 10 counts, eight he was found guilty. Now, this could result in him spending the remainder of his life in prison. However, because this was a Mueller investigation, many would speculate that uh, the the prize isn't uh, Manafort in prison, at least not for the remainder of his life, but Manafort, who uh, flips on President uh, Trump, uh, because this is part of the collusion investigation. And while Paul Manafort's convictions and that trial uh, had nothing to do with his role as the campaign manager, uh, it is uh, believed, at least by the, the uh, investigation, that Paul Manafort might know something and to, uh, to get information from him about the president and whether or not there was collusion is really uh, the jewel in the crown that uh, the Mueller investigation has been going for all along. Um, again, uh, Mr. Manafort isn't finished standing trial. Of course, first of all, the prosecution has to decide what they're going to do with the 10 counts that were declared in mistrial. And Mr. Manafort himself has to decide whether or not he wants to appeal. But then Manafort's legal troubles um, will continue. He's also facing charges in a separate federal case in Washington, D.C., including conspiring against the United States, conspiring to launder money, failing to register as an agent of a foreign principal, and providing false statements. Now, there's some question as to whether or not he will stand for those charges, given the conviction that he's already um, had, but he will at least in Washington, D.C., uh, next week, um, take up those issues where they lead. We don't quite know at this point. And then, of course, Michael Cohen, President Trump's longtime personal attorney, admitted today to violating federal campaign finance laws by paying at least $130,000 in hush money to one adult film star in October of 2016 at the direction of then-candidate Donald Trump. Now, that was clarified with his attorney, Mr. Dershowitz, who named Donald Trump, whereas Michael Cohen only alluded to a candidate. 
Now, Mr. Cohen uh, was President uh, Trump's longtime personal attorney. He admitted to violating federal campaign finance law uh, by arranging hush money, not only in one case, but in a second. In entering the plea, he didn't specifically name the two women or even the president, recounting instead that he worked with an unnamed candidate. But the but uh, the amounts and the dates all line up with the payment made to Daniels and McDougal. In total, Cohen pleaded guilty to five counts of tax evasion, one count of making false statements to a financial institution, one count of willfully causing an unlawful corporate uh, contribution and one count of making an excessive uh, campaign contribution. He could have received up to 65 years in prison if convicted of all charges. However, as part of his plea deal, he agreed not to challenge any sentence between 46 and 63 months. The deal does not involve cooperation agreement with federal prosecutors. Cohen is set to... um, be sentenced on the 12th of December. Now, some are, are questioning whether or not the president will pardon Mr. Manafort and Mr. Cohen. And that's certainly a possibility, I suppose, although there's been no indication up to this point that the president is even considering such a thing. But it does have an impact on both gentlemen's ability to plead the fifth uh, in um, if they were called to testify in future um investigations related to collusion. So there, there are some, uh, some tricks to deciding to do that. If in fact, that's what, uh, what these gentlemen decide to, or if the president rather decides to do just that. Uh, finally, the top story of the day that broke throughout the day. In fact, the, the whole afternoon and morning uh, was really filled with one uh, revelation following another on several large stories. And the, uh, uh, the latest was that Molly Tibbetts, uh, the young woman who was a, a student uh, out jogging, her body was found and the suspected murderer identified. An illegal immigrant from Mexico stands accused of killing the college student, Molly Tibbetts. She was 20. He dumped her body in an Iowa cornfield after he allegedly accosted her during uh, a jog on the 18th of July um, when she threatened to call the police as he was chasing her. Um, the 24-year-old was charged with first-degree murder today in Tibbetts' death. According to officials, he has admitted uh, to the crime and, in fact, led investigators to the location of her body, but does say that he blacked out and doesn't recall any of the details of how uh, he ended her life. Authorities said that he lived in the rural um, area um, where the body was found. He's being held on a federal immigration detainer. He's believed to have been in the area for four to seven years. The body of the 20-year-old University of Iowa student Tibbetts was found today in a field covered with corn stalks where he led them. Investigators said that they used surveillance footage to track down Rivera. Uh, the video showed uh, Tibbetts jogging in a rural area near her hometown of Brooklyn. Also showed Rivera's car. She was last seen at a about 7.30 p.m. on the night of July the 18th after she went for a jog around the neighborhood of Brooklyn. Uh, her family pled with uh, pled rather for her safe return and had remained hopeful until she uh, was found earlier today. In fact, her father was making his way home only to um, have to reverse course once her body was identified. Investigators announced last week that they were focusing the search on five locations in and around Brooklyn, which included a car wash just a block away from the city's main commercial strip and a TA truck stop uh, next to the interstate, which runs across the entirety of of Iowa. Uh, Brooklyn is a town of just 1,400 people. It was shaken with this disappearance. The brother of Tibbetts' boyfriend said that um, there was no sign of struggle in the uh, home that she had left to go for the jog. And now, of course, we know uh, what happened to this young woman. And, of course, the country is grieving uh, her loss and, of course, the loss of so many 
uh, young women and men who are missing but don't get this kind of coverage um, as this 20-year-old did. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, in about a week, we're going to begin to hear the confirmation process. The hearings will begin for Judge Kavanaugh, who is the President uh, Trump's nominee to fill the vacancy left on the U.S. Supreme Court. Senator Collins, who's been one of those Republicans that uh, Republicans have worried about as to whether or not she would support Judge Kavanaugh. She's made statements uh, such as, if he is unwilling to support Roe versus Wade, I would not uh, be willing to support him. Well, following her two-hour meeting with Judge Kavanaugh on Tuesday, Senator Collins of Maine told reporters that the Supreme Court judge, or the nominee rather, told her he believes the landmark abortion case Roe versus Wade is settled law. Now, what does that mean exactly for a potential Supreme Court justice uh, when the, the law itself um, can only be revisited if there is a case that comes to them? They don't decide which issues they're going to take up. It's not a political body. They don't decide, you know, Roe versus Wade was a pretty um, crummy decision. Let's let's revisit that and decide whether or not it should stand. They only take up an issue if questions are raised through, uh, through um, cases that have made their way through the lower courts. So in saying that Roe versus Wade is settled law doesn't necessarily mean that he wouldn't be willing to overturn aspects of it if the right question were put before him. But it does uh, concern pro-lifers, and it doesn't provide much assurance to those who are dead set against him. Well, the centrist Republican lawmaker said he spoke to she spoke to Kavanaugh at length about judicial precedent as it relates to abortion policy, adding that the recent nominee agrees with Chief Justice John Roberts' contention that the issue was settled as a matter of law. Now, Roe is settled as a precedent of the court entitled to respect under principles of stare decisis, and those principles applied in the Casey case explain when cases should be revisited and when they should not. And it is settled as a precedent of the court. Yes, Robert said in his confirmation hearing. Uh, Collins, uh, who previously said she had some concerns about Kavanaugh's confirmation, seemed to indicate he assuaged her fear of a conservative high court overturning the 1973 decision. Well, due to her unique status as a pro-choice Republican, she's emerged as a frequent target of Democrats, uh, activists and lawmakers seeking support to block Kavanaugh's confirmation, which is scheduled for September the 4th. So um, what to make of that statement in light of a judge who is not in a position to say, this is how I would rule one way or the other. They have to take into account what is presented to them in a case that comes before the U.S. Supreme Court. And, of course, there's a rather arduous course that uh, that's required for it to even get to that point. And if, it, in fact, it does, um, the challenge of dealing with the matters raised in that specific decision. So not sure what to make of it. Um, those on the left who are already opposed to Kavanaugh for every reason one can imagine – uh, don't trust that that is an answer that they can believe. So you can take it for what it's worth. Well, the last known Nazi collaborator living in the United States, a 95-year-old former camp guard who played an indispensable role in the murders of thousands of Jews, was deported to Germany from New York City home early this morning, um, completing what the U.S. ambassador to Germany called a difficult task. Richard Grenell, the U.S. ambassador who arrived in Germany earlier this year after political maneuvering by Democrats held up his nomination for months, told Fox and Friends in an exclusive interview that President Trump, who is from New York, instructed him to make the removal of uh, Jekyll Palij a priority. 
Grinnell said the new German government, which took office in March, brought new energy to the matter. It's really a credit to the president, who was very clear about this case, made clear he wanted this individual out of the United States, Grinnell said later, adding it's a great day for the United States to have this man out of our country at 95. Hmm. Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents on Tuesday implemented a deportation order against Palij uh, that dated back to 2004, but kicking out Palij, who immigrated to the United States in 1949, became a citizen in 1957 after concealing his Nazi background, was no easy task. Grinnell said the deportation came after months of diplomatic negotiations and was difficult because Palij is not a German citizen and was stateless after losing his citizenship in the United States. Well, Germany had a moral obligation, not necessarily a legal one, because he worked in the name of then uh, German government, uh, the then German government. Well, the ambassador praised Germany's new foreign and interior ministers who both wanted to work with President Trump to make this happen. He also said that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was aggressive about the case. Palij admitted to Department of Justice officials in 2003 that he trained at a Nazi camp in German-occupied Poland. Court documents indicated that uh, the men who trained at the SS training camp uh, carried out the Nazi regime's planned murdering of Jews in Poland. The 1957 um, or the 95 year old uh, also served as an armed guard uh, at an adjacent uh, labor camp where he played an indispensable role in the death of roughly 6,000 Jews who were killed in one of the single largest massacres of the Holocaust in 1943, according to the statement. Palij, who claimed he was working on a farm and in a factory during World War II, had his U.S. citizenship revoked in 2003 by a federal judge and ordered to be deported a year later. His appeal was denied in 2005. Now you wonder, it's 2018, why is he just now being moved? Well, after the war, Palij, he maintained friendships with other Nazi guards who the government says came to the United States under similar false pretenses. And in an interesting coincidence, Palij and his wife purchased their uh, Queen's home near LaGuardia Airport in 1966 from a Polish, a Polish rather, Jewish couple who had survived the Holocaust and were not aware of his past. Well, the State Department later issued a statement saying that Germany has readmitted Palij. As for what will happen to him in Germany, Mr. Greenwell said uh, it's in the hands of the Germans to figure out what to do with him next. Well, the fact is we have uh, a president who really wants to fight for the American people, make sure that the rule of law is followed, he said in his interview. In a special ceremony at the White House on Monday, the president honored two agencies, Immigration and Customs Enforcement and Customs and Border Protection. However, as ABS, ABC News noted, Palij was not mentioned. He was removed, by the way, uh, caught and removed by ICE. Microsoft on Monday said it seized websites created by Russian hackers to imitate conservative American think tanks, but instead redirected visitors to websites where their passwords could be stolen. The New York Times reported that some of the sites that were targeted were the Hudson Institute and the International Republican Institute think tanks that have dis, uh, disagreed with President Trump on ending Russian sanctions. Well, three other fake domains were designed to look as if they belonged to U.S. senators. Uh, to be clear, we currently have no evidence these domains were used in any successful attacks before the DCU, Digital Crime Unit, transferred control of them, nor do we have evidence to indicate the identity of the ultimate targets of any planned attacks involving these domains, Microsoft said in a blog. Well, Microsoft called the hacking group um, Strontium, 
Uh, others call uh, call it Fancy Bear or APT28. The special counsel, Robert Mueller's indictment has uh, tied uh, this effort to uh, Russia's main intelligence agency, known as GRU, and to the 2016 email hacking of both the Democratic National Committee and Clinton campaign. The Russians are seeking to disrupt and divide, Brad Smith, Microsoft's president, said, according to the paper. There is an asymmetric uh, risk here for democratic societies. The kind of attacks we see from authoritarian regimes like Russia are seeking to fracture and splinter groups in our society. The Washington Post reported that there were phony versions of six websites. Uh, so I suppose beware as they're now being uh, discovered and their uh, true identities being revealed. We're going to take a break for news and traffic here at the top of the hour in just a moment. Uh, coming up in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Steve Moore. He's a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's making the case that the United States is leading the world in reducing carbon emissions without it enacting extreme environmental policies. We're also going to talk with Katie Yoder. She's an associate culture editor at the Media Research Center. We'll talk about a new CBS Refinery 29 poll that reveals what young women are thinking about abortion, feminism, and the media. But first, news and traffic. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, six minutes after five o'clock. In this hour, we're going to talk with Steve Moore, a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's going to make the case that the United States is leading the world in reducing carbon emissions without enacting Uh, Extreme environmental policies, in fact, leading the world means the rest have fallen behind and haven't lived up to the commitments they have made in these environmental policies. We'll also talk with Katie Yoder, Associate Culture Editor at the uh, Media Research Center. We're going to talk about a new poll, a CBS Refinery29 poll that reveals what young women actually think about abortion, feminism, and the media. You might be surprised, as they were. That's coming up a bit later. Also, the Bogota uh, Festival is now complete. We'll hear what um, Luis Palau had to say about about the festival. He was unable to attend, but rejoices over what God has done, uh, using his team and his son as the primary evangelist. All of that coming up in this hour. Well, the president, uh, the, the Trump administration, rather, is going after Facebook for allegedly engaging in housing discrimination. On Friday, Housing and Urban Development uh, Secretary Ben Carson filed a lawsuit against Facebook, accusing the tech giant of discrimination for allowing landlords and home sellers access to advertising tools that limit which prospective buyers or tenants can view certain online ads based on race, religion, sex, disability, and other characteristics. Uh, Anna Maria Ferrarius, um, serving as HUD's assistant secretary for fair housing and equal opportunity, blasted Facebook for alleged discrimination. The Fair Housing Act prohibits housing discrimination, including those who might limit or deny housing options with a click of a mouse. Uh, She added that when Facebook uses the vast amount of personal data it collects to help advertisers to discriminate, it's the same as slamming the door in someone's face. Well, Data collected by Facebook on users who had interests in uh, mobility scooters or deaf culture was allowed to uh, to be used by advertisers who filtered out such users. Additionally, users interested in childcare or parenting were also allowed to be filtered out from seeing ads. Well, in April, the National Fair Housing Alliance and three other member organizations similarly filed suit against Facebook for allegedly enabling a housing discrimination. Facebook attempted to have the case dismissed, but was denied. The categorizing of Facebook users based on Protected characteristics and the mechanism that Facebook offers advertisers to target those segments of the potential audience violate the Fair Housing Act. 
Well, Facebook's motion should therefore be denied, said Jeffrey Berman, serving as the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Well, Facebook intends to work with HUD to fix the issues at hand, according to a spokesman. On Saturday, the president voiced his discontent over the mounting censorship of conservative voices on social media as well, signaling um, potential action from the administration to stop it. Social media is totally discriminating against Republican conservative voices, the president wrote in a string of tweets, speaking loudly and clearly for the Trump administration. We won't let that happen, end quote. Well, countless reports and studies have shown that politically uh, conservative and pro-life messages have been censored by major tech companies in some fashion, such as so-called shadow banning, burying conservative news via algorithm changes and outright bans. Censorship is a very dangerous thing and absolutely impossible to police, he added. Um, let's everybody participate, good and bad, and we will j- all just have to figure it out. Well, social media is totally discriminating against uh, uh, some voices. The president went on to, to uh, tweet on several occasions, making the point that Facebook um, will be investigated if it's not ultimately resolved. And the Internal Revenue Service, you know, the agency to which all of our uh, private information is uh, given and held, and we are accountable for uh, paying the Internal Revenue Service has failed to implement a series of reforms aimed at bolstering its um, protection of sensitive taxpayer information, leaving the agency's computer systems vulnerable to unauthorized access that could compromise your financial information, according to a new government oversight report. And while the IRS has taken steps to improve its protection of taxpayer information, it's yet to implement more than 100 security procedures meant to help the agency protect sensitive taxpayer information, according According to the Government Accountability Office, Uh, they found in their latest audit, until IRS takes additional steps to address unresolved and newly identified control deficiencies and effectively implements components of its information security program, IRS financial reporting and taxpayer data will remain unnecessarily vulnerable to inappropriate and undetected use, modification or disclosure, according to the report. These shortcomings were the basis of the GAO's determination that the IRS had a significant deficiency in internal control over financial report systems for the fiscal year 2017. Well, we're drawing to the end of 2018, and these issues are still unresolved. Well, the IRS is just one of numerous government agencies struggling to prevent the disclosure of sensitive information, including that of American citizens and sensitive government information stored on government networks. The GAO found in its latest IRS audit, continuing in newly identified control deficiencies, limited the effectiveness of security controls for protecting the confidentiality, the integrity, and the availability of IRS's financial and tax processing systems. Well, government auditors are pressing the IRS to implement more than 30 new procedures to protect sensitive financial data. This includes limiting unauthorized access to certain networks and increasing documentation among those uh, with access to these networks. Auditors identified at least 154 recommendations to improve security that have yet to be implemented by the IRS, which collected some $3.4 trillion in federal taxes in 2017. Now, while it's frustrating that it has yet to be implemented, it is a major task to uh, turn that large ship around uh, to add new systems in order to function, even when uh, there's so much at stake. And 69 major earthquakes have hit Earth's most active geological disaster zone in the space of just 48 hours. 
16 significant tremors, those at magnitude 4.5 or above, shook the Pacific Ring of Fire on Monday, following a spate of 53 that hit the region on Sunday. The quakes rattled Indonesia, Bolivia, Japan, and Fiji, but failed to reach the western coast of the United States, which also falls along that infamous geological ring. Well, the tremors have raised concerns that California's big one, a destructive earthquake of magnitude 8 or greater, may be looming. Scientists have previously warned that the Ring of Fire's activity may trigger a domino effect that sets off earthquakes and volcanic uh, eruptions elsewhere in the region. California, which straddles a huge San Andreas fault line and sits on the eastern edge of the ring, is long overdue for a deadly earthquake, according to researchers. Well, the recent spate of Ring of Fire activity was recorded by experts at the United States Geological Survey that is headquartered in Western Virginia. Maps generated by that agency's vast array of seism- uh, seismometers show Fiji was the worst hit with five earthquakes above the magnitude 4.5, classified as significant by USGS, rumbling the uh, country since Monday morning. The largest of these was a 5.0 tremor that struck the region at about 6.30 a.m. local time. An enormous 8.2 magnitude earthquake struck in the Pacific Ocean close to Fiji and Tonga on Sunday but was too deep to cause any significant damage. The quake's depth was 347.7 miles, would have dampened the uh, shaking at the surface. Uh, We're monitoring the situation, they say, in some places felt it, but it was a very deep earthquake. Not much concern at the time. Indonesia was hit by seven significant earthquakes, while the Solomon Islands, Bolivia, and Tonga uh, were each rocked by a single quake on Monday. The nations often experience seismic activities as they sit along the Ring of Fire, a massive horseshoe-shaped area of the Pacific Basin. rather. Well, the ring is formed with a, a string of 452 volcanoes and sites of high seismic activity that encircle the Pacific Ocean, including the entire U.S. West Coast, including our own. Well, the USGS has not issued a warning over the recent shakes, meaning they do not pose an immediate risk to U.S. citizens. But the recent jump of uh, Ring of Fire activity may spark activity elsewhere in the region, including California, we're being told. One professor and earth scientist at the University of California, California, uh, Santa Cruz, told Vox in February that volcanoes and earthquakes in the area can interact. California was recently shaken by a cluster of 11 earthquakes ranging in magnitude 2.8 to 5.6 on the Richter scale. The cluster occurred last month on the seabed on the um, Juan de Fuca tectonic plate around six miles underwater off the U.S. west coast. This plate forms uh, parts of the Cascadia subduction zone, which runs from northern California to British Columbia. Seismologists say a full rupture along the 650-mile-long offshore fault could trigger a 9.0 magnitude earthquake and an accompanying tsunami. Fears of a quake of this size, dubbed the Big One, were stirred last year by an expert who warned that the destructive earthquake will hit California imminently. Now, that can be a very long imminent or a very short one, but they're saying imminent. People's uh, decision not to accept it will only mean more sufferers, scientists uh, warn that the big one is now overdue to hit California. In a keynote speech to a meeting of the Japan Geoscience Union and American Geophysical Union, Dr. Jones warned that the public are not yet ready to accept the randomness of future earthquakes. People tend to focus on earthquakes happening uh, in the next 30 years, but they should be preparing now, she warned. Well, we'll see what actually happens. According to the USGS, intensity is determined from the effects on people, human structures, and the natural environment. And because of highly populated areas around the 
uh, Ring of Fire. It becomes a, an issue where otherwise it would just be an event that would have very little impact. 48 hours uh, driving, or rather 69 major earthquakes uh, hitting the Pacific Ring of Fire in just 48 hours. Only God knows what will happen next. Up next, we, well, at least on the program, we know Steve Moore will join us. He's a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the United States leading the world in reducing carbon emissions. That's next right here on the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, you know, might might be surprised to learn that the United States is leading the world in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Maybe I should repeat that because it doesn't fit the narrative that we're often uh, told. Well, the U.S. is leading the world in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, as our emissions have fallen, the pollution level rose internationally and by a large amount, a larger amount, in fact, than in previous years. Well, here to talk with us about that is Steve Moore. He's senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation, making the case that the United States is uh, leading the world in reducing carbon emissions without enacting extreme environmental policies. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, great to be with you, Georgine. And this is a, it is a great story, isn't it? That we, uh, that not only do we have the world's uh, best economy right now, but we also are doing the most to reduce uh, our uh, carbon emissions, to reduce greenhouse gases. And, um, you know, it shows you can grow the economy and, and clean up the environment at the same time. Well, absolutely. In fact, in your piece in Real Clear Politics, you point out that America has never signed the Kyoto Protocol. We never enacted a carbon tax. We don't have cap-and-trade carbon emissions. Uh, Donald Trump pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accord uh, that was signed by almost the entire world, and yet uh, we're doing better than the rest of the entire world. And that's because, um, you know, with these European countries and uh, Asian countries, they like to wag their finger at us and scold us for not, you know, signing on to these anti-America treaties where we we get, you know, uh, caught paying all the bills for it. And so Trump was very wise to pull us out of that. And yet while they're scolding us and wagging their finger at us, we're actually doing more. We reduced our carbon emissions more than any of the European countries did. And incidentally, they're not anywhere near meeting their Paris climate accord they all signed the agreement but they're they, a lot of those countries aren't even 50 percent at their target and not a single one of them meet meet, meet uh has meet uh been meeting the target and yet uh we're the one who's supposed to be the uh the environmental villain when in fact we're the ones who are doing the most and by the way the reason that people are probably confused about how that's possible yeah. uh and the, the answer is because we're using because we have a shale oil and gas revolution going on in america we're using more and more cheap natural gas, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to, uh, for fuel and for electricity. And, and that's a great way to, to, you know, generate electricity with it's cheap, it's abundant, it's made in America and it's clean burning. And yet here's the irony, Georgine, that the left hates, uh, uh, shale oil and gas. (laughs) They don't want it, you know, even though that's what's reducing our carbon emissions. Yeah. And this is all happening with a, uh, uh, an economic growth of more than 3%. Three percent. Yeah, we're up to four percent now. Now the That's numbers right. I cited in my piece were for for 2017, but it's a it's a it's a really amazing story. And you know, th- again, uh, t- today you may have seen the news that Trump um, rescinded many yes. of these. Um, with this clean power plant and oh my gosh the left is going crazy he's the environmental satan how could he possibly do this well the answer is it doesn't matter how much we reduce our uh, you know coal consumption by china and india every time we shut down on a coal plant in the in, uh, in the united states they build five <laughs> so how is that reducing government emissions 
So China and India, they're signatories to the, uh, the Paris Climate Agreement? I believe they are. I know China is. I'm not sure about India. But, you know, both of them made this sanctimonious promise. Oh, yes, we're very concerned about climate change. And, you know, they say all the right things. And, you know, in fact, I I end my piece by saying, you know, the difference between a liberal and a conservative these days is conservatives believe, you know, you should, uh, you know, that actions speak louder than words. And liberals believe words speak louder than actions. So, you know, it's 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 they say they're going to do these things, but they never do. Yeah, there's a lot going on in the news right now, but is this a story that anybody, uh, for the most part, is reporting on? Because this is great news, and yet we're not hearing, we're not reading it, uh, we're not seeing it virtually anywhere. Well, thanks to people like you, the news is getting out there, you know, and so thank you for covering the story because the mainstream media, do you think they want to give credit for Donald, to Donald Trump for something like this? I mean, their whole narrative is that Trump is the environmental Darth Vader. Right. And he's going to destroy the planet when, in fact, you know, we're making you know great progress. The only news story I saw about it from the left said, oh, well, yes, it is true that we're reducing our greenhouse gases, but we're not making as much progress as we did under Obama. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? I mean, this is the lowest level of emissions we've had, you know, in, in a long time. And we, we grew the economy much faster under Trump than Obama ever did. Well, if you define progress as uh, saying something that you have no intention of living up to or at least, uh, you know, walking through uh, the, the motions that are required to at least appear to be concerned about the issue, then I suppose if you define progress in that way, then we're not making as much progress because he's exactly. actually doing rather than just talking. But this is the whole point of the Trump presidency, actually. You know, as you know, I worked as a senior economic advisor to Trump during the campaign, and so I got to know him very well. And the truth is, you know, with Donald Trump, uh, you, you know, I learned this very early on. You have to watch what he does. Don't listen to what he says. You know, and, and there's an old saying, you know, that Trump is the worst president ever unless you look at his results. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and his results are spectacular. I mean, we've got the strongest economy we've had in 25 years. We've got this, uh, you know, environmental uh, cleanup that's going on. We've got so many, uh, you know, people in jobs. We've got more jobs than we have people to fill them. I mean, I could go on and on. Lowest black and lowest Latino unemployment rates since the Beatles were still playing together. I mean, all of this stuff is amazing, and uh, Trump never gets the credit for it. Well, I appreciate your drawing our attention to this particular fact, because it does make a difference, and I think people are encouraged to know that we, despite uh, not signing on to uh, things that have had little impact, uh, that we are actually making progress. Yeah, because words... You know, actions do speak louder than words. And, you know, as long as we continue to produce shale oil and gas, you know, and use our natural gas, um, you know, we will reduce pollution levels. And not just carbon dioxide, but, you know, the other real pollutions like lead and smog and sulfur and other things that you can you know, actually get sick from. You know, carbon dioxide is not a pollution. Carbon monoxide is a pollution. You can get sick from carbon monoxide. And so, you know, it's good news across the board, and it shows that America is now firing on all cylinders. Well, I appreciate the good news, and we need to hold on to that. I appreciate your, your taking the time to talk with us. Really uh, appreciate your insight. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Again, Steve Moore is a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Just a reminder, um, the uh, nearly every nation that signed on to the Paris Climate Agreement has admonished the United States for not doing so. 
they've already violated the agreement they signed on to. According to Climate Action Network Europe, all EU countries are failing to increase their climate action in line with the Paris Agreement goal. All but five countries have even reached 50% of their current targets. So kudos to the United States. Although we're not signatories, we are living up to the spirit of the law, while others are failing to even live up to the letter of the uh, of the law. So here you have it. The countries in the Paris Climate Accord, they've broken almost every promise they've made, and uh, the nation, the United States, that hasn't signed the treaty is doing more than any other nation to reduce global warming. Yet we're being lectured by the uh, sanctimonious Europeans and Asian nations that are uh, for not doing our fair share. Apparently, we didn't spend enough ink by signing the agreement. It's uh, an, a case of uh, what uh, one says as opposed to what one actually does. So I don't know about you, but I'm uh, I'm encouraged by all of that. And uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there's so much that we haven't signed on to that's sort of compulsory if you want to at least appear to care about the environment. So. Again, kudos to the United States for doing better. Coming up, we're going to talk with Katie Yoder. She is an associate culture editor um, with the Media Research Center and um, the Joe and Betty Anderlich Fellow at the MRC. On CBS Refinery, it's a poll that reveals women are rejecting abortion, feminism, and the media. An interesting poll that gives us an insight into how younger women are... uh, reflecting on the culture and uh, how surprising some of that information is because we're not hearing it elsewhere. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back in just a few moments to talk with Katie Yoder. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in anticipation of the upcoming midterm elections, CBS and Refinery29 teamed up for a poll and it concerned young American women's voting trends and their views on certain issues. You might be surprised at what some of what they found about uh, women. According to the poll, a majority of young millennial women reject unrestricted abortion. They refuse a feminist identity and they indicate trust issues uh, with the uh, with the media. Well, here to talk with us about that is Katie Yoder. She's associate culture editor at the Joe and Betty Anderlich Fellow at the Media Research Center. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, we all know the midterm elections are approaching. They're, what, less than 90 days away. This CBS and Refinery29 poll was designed to do what? Right. Well, it seems like they were they were trying to figure out how young millennial women voters uh, would how they would cast their votes. So this was this poll was looking at women from ages eighteen to thirty five, uh, and they were looking at their how they would vote on certain issues, uh, and uh, among other issues that included abortion, feminism, and the media. Uh, and it found one of the most surprising numbers from this poll is that only 28% of young women in this country want abortion legal in all cases. So in other words, that means 72% of young women are likely in favor of some kind of abortion restriction. And that's surprising because we don't often see that reflected in, in media reports or, or in the entertainment world either. Well, it certainly might explain some of the panic that we've seen with Planned Parenthood and NARAL and some other organizations concerned about the impact that the pro-life movement has had on the psyche of the nation in general. So it's encouraging to see that younger women are not falling for the, the same old uh, arguments that we've seen for abortion on demand throughout the, uh, the term of one's pregnancy uh, over the, uh, the, the length of, of time before and uh, after the Roe versus Wade 
uh, decision. So that's very encouraging. Did they clarify at all what they meant by some restrictions on abortion? Um, no, no. I, the, basically, the poll numbers showed that 28% want abortion legal in all cases, and then the 72% consisted of women who want abortion, uh, 34% want abortion illegal in most cases, 25% want abortion illegal in most cases, and 13% want abortion illegal in, mo- in, illegal in all cases. So that 72% is broken up by how many people want, uh, or how many of these young women want some restrictions, um, but not all, in not all cases. So it's, it's to varying degrees. Another surprise in this poll was the reluctance of millennial women to self-identify as feminists. Tell us what the survey found. Sure. So f- this was incredibly surprising. Uh, 54% of young women surveyed did not identify as feminists. So that's, that's the majority of millennial women, or more than half. Uh, and that's, that's surprising because the feminist movement regularly claims that they're championing all women, advancing all women, uh, and yet these, these young women are saying, no, this doesn't fit with who I am. Uh, so it's, it's incredibly surprising, especially, I'm sure, for feminists. Finally, one of the surprising uh, things the poll revealed is that only 7% of these young women who are voters uh, trust the media almost always. Right, right. And that's that's huge. Young women aren't trusting the media. And that also reflects, you know, Americans in general are, are becoming more and more aware of bias in the media. And that might be because... Uh, Young women aren't being reflected. Uh, the, their views on issues like abortion aren't being reflected in the media. Uh, so that's, you know, that's another case here to consider. Well, um, the purpose of this was to discover perhaps where uh, young millennial women are today in, in, uh, uh, ahead of the upcoming midterm elections. Did they speculate about the in implications that uh, these views, these revelations might have on how these young women will impact the midterm elections? No, not in the, the poll itself that I saw, uh, but I'm sure they'll, they're coming out with stories to speculate how young women will vote. I know when you look at the media, uh, the media often talk about how, you know, abortion is women's rights or women's health care, and they often assume that women will vote for politicians who are supporting abortion. Uh, and I think this poll probably surprised them because it shows that young women aren't exactly, they aren't all in for abortion. Um, they aren't all in for feminism. And they don't believe everything that the media tells them. So I, I think there there were some surprises here for for the the poll conductors. So we'll we'll see what happens from there. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Katie Yoder, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it very much. Again, Katie is associate of culture, uh, the associate culture editor rather, and the Joe and Betty Anderlich Fellow at the Media Research Center. Uh, I think it's important because what this uh, this poll indicates, at least with regard to abortion, it contradicts the talking points 
A feminist icon, Gloria Steinem, for example, who says no abortion means no democracy for women. And former Planned Parenthood president Cecil Richards, who insists that women are not free without abortion. That even opposes the narrative of the broadcast networks that regularly describe abortion as a women's health care issue. Young women beg to differ, differ and that's, um, that's rather uh, encouraging uh, to me, at least. Um, feminists, uh, as um, a Guardian columnist Jessica Valenti uh, her attack on pro-life and conservative women and even accusing pro-life and conservative women of appropriating feminist rhetoric uh, would be surprised by this as well. Young women were divided on the Me Too movement in this survey. 50% said hashtag Me Too movement would, um, uh, will make things in the long run uh, better for women. The other 50% said things either won't change much or make things worse. And with regard to the media, again, the poll reported that only 7% of them trust the media almost always. Uh, to give accurate information, 25% said most of the time, 42% said only sometimes, 26% said almost never. And we're talking about millennial young women. Um, they aren't alone. Other polls show that Americans in general are also aware of bias in the media, and the poll only adds to the reasons why that might be. Women's uh, news sites regularly assume that all women support abortion and fe- feminism. That's not the case. So perhaps... Uh, they need to rethink their presumption about the diversity uh, among us. Now, diversity generally is something that we embrace as long as it's superficial, as long as we look different, we come from different cultural backgrounds. But if we think different, uh, then we're not invited to be a part of the larger community. So um, this may at least be some reason to uh, to pause and think about uh, the value of um, and, and the definition of real diversity. So anyway, thank you, Katie Yoder, for... Uh, for that. Up next, we'll bring you an update on the uh, Palau Bogota event that is now concluded. What happens next? Also, there's a PR campaign going on. It's legal to pray in school. Now, not everybody knows that, so we'll tell you about that campaign and how you can um, add it to your Facebook page if you'd like to uh, emphasize the point. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back in just a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with James Robin, Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. So we'll uh, talk with Mr. Robin tomorrow. On Thursday, we'll, well, actually, we're working on something our guest uh, had to uh, cancel, but we'll, we'll work something up and you'll be thrilled. I'm hoping that's coming up on Thursday. And then Friday, of course, we'll take a look at the other side of the news. Luis Palau uh, issued a response to the Bogota festival that took place this past weekend. As you might recall, he had intended to uh, to be there. He intended to speak. This is where his ministry began. And it was uh, certainly a, a, an emotional um, prospect of going back and presenting the gospel uh, at this stage in life. But he wrote of the Bogota festival uh, earlier today in an email, praise the Lord for all he did in Colombia this past week. More than 200,000 people flooded the parks and squares of Bogota over three days to hear about the abundant life in Jesus Christ. And then he offered several photos. You might go to the website uh, for some of them. He writes that as much as I had prayed and hoped I would be in a position to go and preach at this historic campaign, the Lord had other plans. And he refers to Isaiah. 55, 8 and 9. Our son Andrew had the joy of sharing the gospel at each event, and as a result, more than 18,000 individuals responded by placing their trust in Jesus Christ. And just think about that for a moment. 18,000 individuals responded by placing their trust 
in Jesus Christ. And here are some facts from the festival, again, according to Luis Palau. There were seven evangelistic events, totaling 200,000 people in attendance, and that's the conservative figure. It's actually more than that. Uh, There were 410,000 people who viewed online. There were 18,545 decisions to follow Christ. There were 12,000 trained counselors on site, and they partnered with 852 churches. Now, that's a real reflection of the body of Christ. Each decision maker was met in person by one of the 12,000 trained local volunteers and will be receiving encouragement and follow-up from one of the 852 local churches who helped host the festival. Uh, Says Stella, who attended, I give thanks to the Lord for the life of Luis Palau and the blessing he and his team have brought to Bogota. Another Lucero writes, I am without words. What a great blessing this festival is for my beloved Colombia. Sharing the gospel, uh, Luis Palau continues, is a community effort, and you played a vital role. Through your prayers, giving, support, and encouragement, you helped make the Bogota Festival possible. Because of you, thousands of people have found new hope in Christ today. Through this effort, they found peace, forgiveness, joy, and the assurance of salvation. Thank you for your partnership to share the gospel with every sector of society in Bogota. It is our greatest joy to celebrate what God is doing together. Luis Palau. And then again, as I mentioned, there were pictures of um, of that event, and I would encourage you to go to the website for more uh, more information and to see some of those images. Well, the question now is, what's next? Well, the good news is coming to West Michigan with City Fest. Uh, that's um, September 8th through the 9th, the next region-wide evangelistic festival is scheduled for September 2nd through the 9th in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And they're focusing on serving the region, proclaiming the powerful message of hope in Jesus. And the campaign has brought together 431 local churches and engaged more than 10,000 local believers. So keep that uh, that effort in your prayer. Again, the event taking place in September. And the specific dates, let me get this right, 8 through and 8th and 9th. And Luis Palau is planning, uh, should the Lord say the same, to be a part of that effort. Then I wanted to tell you about a national PR campaign. It's legal to pray in school. Well, for more than 50 years, Americans have been, well, somewhat confused about the issue of prayer in school and students' rights to pray in school. Well, Congress never passed any law that prohibits prayer or the free exercise of religion, as stated in our U.S. Constitution, First Amendment. Congress shall make no law establishing a religion or denying the free exercise thereof. Well, according to the Pacific Justice Institute in their press release, the Supreme Court of these United States rulings and subsequent uh, media reporting is in uh, recent years confused school administrators, students and the general public. There have also been some challenges to try to uh, erase any uh, expression of faith in the public square that includes public schools. The Supreme Court makes no law and has never ruled limiting prayer by students or anyone in school. Some cases, Engel versus Vital, uh, implied and ruled that teachers and administrators may not lead, coerce, or force students to play to pray. Rather, however, these rulings have nothing to do with the student's right to free speech and individual and group prayer initiated by students. Well, in 1962, a 90, uh, rather a New York Times headline read: "Supreme." court outlaws official school prayers. The word official was key in that headline, not explaining that students have the right to pray. Students and teachers are free to pray at their desks with friends, co-workers, classmates during free time at lunch, sports activity, 
activities, special events, provided it doesn't interfere with normal class or school activities and lessons. Well, a growing coalition of American citizens, leaders, historians, educators, celebrities, government officials, children's advocates, and media moguls are teaming up to remind all Americans, and especially students, that it's legal to pray in school. This back-to-school truth campaign is endorsed by many non uh, nonprofit organizations, legal teams, and parent and student groups. Brad Dacus, who is the president of the Pacific Justice Institute, who has uh, an army of free lawyers and legal counsel, said, In every case defending students' rights to pray, the students have prevailed. Even teachers have the right to pray in school. Bill Federer, American historian and president of the uh, um, AMI Search and the American Minute, um, and uh, who is also a prolific author, speaker, and radio TV commentator, said President Ronald Reagan said the Constitution was never meant to prevent people from praying. Its declared purpose was to protect their freedom to pray. Well, copyright-free artwork for the campaign is available at the website legaltopray.com. All participants will be sharing via radio, TV, Internet, media, Twitter, email, text, Instagram, Pinterest, uh, YouTube, and all social and broadcast media platforms. Uh, for Twitter, it's um, hashtag it's legal to pray in school or hashtag legal to pray, and each word is capitalized, or hashtag pray in school. Many independent outdoor billboard owners, newspapers, magazine editors are also participating in this campaign. It is legal to pray in school is an informational public service campaign that doesn't attempt to promote any political, individual, or organization's agenda. It is legal to pray in school is an informational campaign only. And spokespersons and other resources for the campaign can be found at legaltopray.com. Um, so if you're interested in uh, joining in, maybe you just post something on your website or your uh, Facebook page or your website uh, to coincide with the campaign. But did want to bring that to your, uh, to your attention. It's legal to pray in school. And it is legal to pray in school. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with James Robin, Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. Uh, that's uh, coming up on Wednesday. Dave King is our engineer today. Thank you, Dave King, for uh, sitting in for James Blend, who's vacationing. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Perhaps we'll have better insight into the unfolding story involving Mr. Manafort, Mr. Cohen, and um, Ms. Tippett's, whose body was uh, discovered earlier today. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.